This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. An unbelievable story of rape is the title of a new investigation published by ProPublica. And what is unbelievable is how the victim of a serial rapist was treated by police, essentially pressured to recant her story. T. Christian Miller co-wrote this article with a reporter at the Marshall Project, which covers criminal justice. Their story, we should say, also focuses on top-notch police work. And T., welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Ryan. So this serial rapist had victims in two states, Colorado and Washington. He is serving a 300-year sentence at Colorado Sterling Correctional Facility. And to understand this story... You have to understand how Mark O'Leary operated. He was meticulous. How so? He was a serial rapist in every sense of that term. And by that, I mean he had a real pattern that he would do uh, with each of his various victims. He would typically begin by spending hours looking, uh, stalking them, essentially, learning their habits, actually breaking into their homes before the actual attack to learn details about them. When the attack happened, he would um, bring in uh, what he called a, a, a rape kit, and, and this is sort of difficult to talk about, but he had um, sort of uh, cameras and um, material that he would use to assault the victims with. And then over a long period, a three-hour period, um, he would repeatedly rape uh, these victims, both, in, as you pointed out, in the state of Washington and in Colorado. Um, and he would usually end by saying, if you uh, go to police, I will release the photos I've taken uh, to the internet to embarrass her children or embarrass her family. Um, and that was a very clear pattern he just did over and over again. He would make his victims shower with the idea of getting rid of evidence. And O'Leary deliberately targeted women in different police jurisdictions. Here in Colorado, that was in Golden and Westminster, Aurora, and then two different communities in Washington. Why the different jurisdictions? This, too, was part of how meticulous he was. Yeah, he had spent a lot of time uh, researching how police in America investigate rape. And um, he had learned, as we have written a couple stories of it at ProPublica and the Marshall Project, that um, police often don't talk to each other in different jurisdictions. And so he would deliberately go to each, uh, commit each rape in a different uh, law enforcement uh, jurisdiction in the hopes that the law enforcement agencies wouldn't sort of talk to each other about the similarity rapes that were occurring in their own backyards. Uh, and he hoped that, that would sort of basically throw police off his track. And it did for a long time. Jurisdictions weren't aware of what was happening in other places. Uh, you quote the rapist as saying that he would have been a person of interest, for instance, if Washington had paid more attention to the case of a young woman there. She's really the central character in this story. Uh, we'll call her Marie, as you do in the article. Um, she was uh, O'Leary's first victim in 2008. She was 18 years old at the time and had lived in foster care for most of her life. After she was attacked, the police and people close to her, her former foster parents, became doubtful of her story. What made them doubt her story of rape? Yeah, that was kind of one of the most interesting parts of of the piece we did. Um, The foster mothers who had um, taken care of Marie uh, both had seen at different times displays of her being sort of um, wanting attention, let's say, not too difficult in a lot of teenage uh, kids. But when the um, rape happened, uh, both of the women responded to comfort Marie. Uh, They were both sort of taken aback by things Marie did that uh, didn't fit their idea of what a quote-unquote normal rape would look like. So they were thrown off, uh, for instance, by 
um, Marie seemed very f- emotionally flat and wasn't, um, you know, uh, really screaming or, or running around tearing out her hair about what had happened. And so they saw that as being like, why aren't you so re- reacting more more strongly to that uh, incident? Um, and it, one of the things we get into an unbelievable story of rape is that there really is no stereotypical response to rape. It, mm-hmm. uh, women can have all sorts of a variety of reactions. Um, and the mothers in this case were, were sort of buying into an old sort of outdated stereotype about how a woman should react. So on that basis, they then contacted the police, who themselves had sort of similar questions and were operating a similar world of stereotypes about rape, and told them that they had some questions about Marie's story. Um, and the police told us that that kind of was um, what really motivated them to begin not believing Marie's story at all. And at that point in time, they, they began to believe that Marie was making up the story. And there are other behaviors that she engages in that make people doubt her story, but that you find are typical for rape victims, including confusing the finer points of the story. Their story may change over time, uh, which I suppose has something to do with the trauma they suffered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the, the things that's pretty well known now is that um, rape victims uh, often also uh, end up suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, um, the trauma of the assault itself is uh, so powerful that it kind of actually affects the brain chemistry and how the brain is able to process information. So, for instance, the, uh, some women, for instance, during the, during the rape, can't remember the assaults, the attacker's face, for instance, because they're focusing on, let's say, a lamp to kind of take their mind off of where they are so they can't actually describe the person who is attacking them. Um, or they remember things out of order and things don't come in the exact right order as, as they actually happened. And in this particular case, Marie made a, which is, which is in retrospect, a pretty small uh, error of recollecting when she was tied up that convinced the police that she must be um, lying because she had told two slightly different versions of how she was tied up and how she got, got freed. And she winds up actually being charged with filing a false report. How often does that happen? Yeah, that's one of the questions we tried to answer, Ryan, and it's not, nobody really keeps that data. What we know is that um, the, if you look at academic studies, the percentage of women or percentage of rape cases that are ruled, legitimately ruled as never having happened at all, hovers around 5%, 8%, it depends on the study, although there are studies which show much higher and as well as much lower. Um, so nobody really keeps track of how often so that, that we know false reports happen. We know they, they do occur. Mm. Um, in this particular case, the extraordinary, the unusual thing, at least, was that she was actually arrested for false reporting. Um, again, we don't have a good sense of how many, how often that happens, but it's not super common because a lot of police agencies are, are reluctant to file a false reporting charge for a lot of good reasons we can talk about. Um, so, yes, in this case, the police went ahead and they filed a false, false reporting charge against her. It was a misdemeanor charge in the state of Washington, and she had to, to uh, deal with that. And as you say, uh, without having the specific numbers, we can we can say that that's fairly rare uh, that a victim is arrested in that way. Um, this story, uh, an unbelievable story of rape, as you title it, is also about good police work, uh, largely here in Colorado, uh, particularly the work of Detective Stacy Galbraith in Golden. She has a simple rule when it comes to the credibility of, ra- of rape victims. What is that rule? Yeah, that was the... Uh... The, the really nice thing about this story was it was a story about how police in, in one uh, state had sort of let, let a rapist slip through the cracks, and, and the police, various police agencies in Colorado had, had done quite the opposite. And Stacey Galbraith was a detective in Golden uh, who had 
um, one of the case, the rape cases, where uh, the individual had attacked a, a young uh, uh, engineering student. Um, and she, the engineering student told this story. And, and I think some people may have thought the story was so fantastical in some ways because uh, it involved a stranger dressed in black breaking into her house. Um, whatever that case may be, Stacy didn't take it at all like that. She just um, had this rule that she told us that she listens to her victims and then she checks out the story. And even if it might sound strange or the victim might not be reacting in a way that um, some people might expect a right victim to react, her philosophy is just take it on its face as it is and then begin doing the detective work of checking out that story and can you verify that story, can you back up that story. Uh, and that's what she did. And it was through, gosh, a series of almost coincidences that she's able to link the rape uh, in her jurisdiction to others in Colorado and to begin to piece together that this is a serial rapist. Yeah, it was just uh, incredible detective work. Um, so when Stacy got uh, her case, which was in, in January of 2011, um, she went home that night to talk to her husband, um, David Galbraith, who works in the Westminster Police Department. And just by chance, the attacker had attacked a woman in Westminster uh, several months prior. So when uh, Stacy was describing, you know, what the rape has. Uh, her husband, uh, her, you know, was like, "Hey, I think we have a rape just like that, or an incident very similar to that in um, Westminster." And that brought in, and that that you know, sort of nighttime talk between spouses is what made Stacy the next day reach out to the Westminster Police Department and get in touch with um, a detective named Edna Hendershot, who had handled this case, and they began to get together and compare notes. You said at the beginning of our conversation that this is something that's often lacking in law enforcement, communication among jurisdictions about cases that might be similar and point to cases of serial rape. And so this happened uh, very unofficially between a husband and wife, as opposed to officially through, I don't know, computer systems talking to each other or something like that. Yeah, that's so. Uh, in this particular case, I would say that in looking at Colorado, Colorado does have um, or at least the Denver area, Denver metro- metropolitan uh, police agencies, uh, have a system that is designed to sort of like overcome that, that hurdle, and they have sort of a, a joint listserv they all talk to. Oh. So um, in this case, in the first case, it was kind of an initial thing, but Edna had actually known about uh, another case in Aurora that she had investigated with um, Scott Burgess, a detective in Aurora, and she had known about that through more of a formal sort of a, uh, one police officer telling another police officer, hey, there's a similar case here. Um, but it, all that aside, it was still an amazing bit of detective work to kind of help bring all these cases together and understand that there was one person behind all these different attacks. And it involves all kinds of, of gumshoe work, uh, including looking at shoe prints and identifying what sneaker might have been involved in the crime. Eventually, this coalition of law enforcement in Metro Denver arrest uh, O'Leary. They search his computer. They find photos of victims. And this is what allows the Colorado detectives to identify the Washington case in which this young woman, Marie, has essentially recanted her story of rape. But they're able to find evidence that it in fact happened. Yeah, that was kind of the the just uh, amazing moment of the story is that uh, they've arrested this guy, as you said, Ryan. They're, the detectives are looking through files, pictures he has of his various victims, and they find this one picture, um, and on uh, one of the pictures he had taken was a picture of this woman's driver's license. And um, 
the, the Colorado detectives are looking at these, these images and they say, who is this woman? And then, boom, there's her license plate. And it says Linwood, Washington, which was the town where she had the, the first victim of Mark O'Leary had been living. And they were able to call up the police there in Washington who had, remember, had not believed uh, Marie, had actually filed false reporting charges against her. Right. And they had to call these uh, police up and say, officers up and say, looks like she was telling the truth because we have uh, pictures of this guy actually assaulting her, and here's her driver's license. And very briefly, did Marie get some kind of settlement? What did she get for the dual pain and suffering of having gone through a rape and then essentially been arrested for false reporting when it wasn't false? Yeah, no, she got a settlement finally um, just about two years ago, um, about $125,000. She got an apology. Um, the Linwood Police Department has expressed their... Um, obviously their embarrassment and apology for missing this uh, incident. Um, and marie uh, today is sort of soldiering on, um, finally having had her name completely cleared. And again, Mark O'Leary, the serial rapist, serving a 300-year sentence now at Colorado's Sterling Correctional Facility. Very briefly, T, it sounds like the takeaways here are the importance of law enforcement agencies uh, talking to each other, and in the case of investigating rape, trusting and verifying what victims say. Yes. I think the takeaway is when the victim walks in the door, treat that victim seriously until you have pretty firm evidence to do so otherwise. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Ryan. I appreciate having me on. T. Christian Miller, senior reporter at ProPublica. He co-wrote this investigation titled An Unbelievable Story of Rape with Ken Armstrong of The Marshall Project. There's a link to it at cprnews.org. Coming up, a state lawmaker who has taken the expression, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again, quite seriously. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Plenty of bills are killed at the state capitol every year, but it doesn't mean they're gone forever. Lawmakers bring them back, and some people call these revived efforts zombie bills. The legislative session starts January 13th, and before that, we're speaking with lawmakers who hope this is the session a bill they're passionate about will pass. We want to know what they've done to clear a path. Today's subject is... Access to affordable housing. Representative Brian Del Grosso is a Republican from Loveland. He's also the House Minority Leader. And a representative, the avenue you want to take to spur on more affordable housing is to make it more attractive to build condos. Why condominiums? Well, condos, townhouses, when you're looking at affordable housing, whether you're a a young family just starting out trying to buy your first home, or if you're a senior that's been living in a bigger home and now you want to downsize to something, that is usually in most cases the most affordable route to go. Now, on its face, this sounds... uh, Perfectly lovely and non-controversial, but the particular uh, bill that you're proposing has been tried in some form or another for many years now. Uh, You are working on legislation that would make it harder for homeowners to sue condo builders for defects. I want to listen to a story that you heard during testimony at a Capitol hearing last session. A.J. Rose said he lives in a townhouse that adjoins a condo complex. The houses were up on a wall. The wall started giving way, which meant that the sidewalk pulled away from the townhouses and the condo. The uh, uh, stairs pulled away from the townhouses. So we had that. We have um, 
problems with drainage. When it's raining and when it's melting, the water runs down along the side of the foundations, uh, goes inside some of the houses. So we have had not just one defect, but a myriad of defects. Sounds like he's had a lot of problems. Why should it be harder for him to sue? Well, look, there's always, in the construction industry, when you're building something, there's always going to be something that happens. And in most contracts, when you buy something uh, from a developer or builder, there is already in the contract, if there is something that goes wrong, whether it's foundation, whether it's electrical, plumbing, uh, this is how we're going to resolve that situation. And, and there's nothing in this bill that stops somebody that has that kind of problem from being able to pursue legally to get some kind of remedy. What we're doing is stopping the HOA itself, just a few people on the HOA board from basically filing a suit on behalf of everybody. And the reality is there's a lot of folks in the HOA that might not have a defect, might not have any issue at all with their condo or their townhouse. But now suddenly because of the HOA's decision, the entire HOA is now lumped into the litigation and is also paying for it. And so what obstacle would this put in the way of a homeowners association suing, perhaps on behalf of those who who don't wish to be a party to it? So the bill does basically three things. It starts off with trying to go through alternative dispute resolution. So whether it's mediation or arbitration, the reality is litigation costs a lot of money for both sides. Uh, And if we can basically solve this and we can get to some kind of a resolution and get your your defect fixed through arbitration or mediation, let's go that route. Uh, The second piece that the bill does, the big thing it does is it does take it out of the HOA board's hands and it takes it to a vote of the HOA, the entire HOA, so the homeowners. Uh, And the last piece is basically just disclosure. We've seen a lot of these things where the HOA gets into a costly litigation And the majority of the HOA uh, homeowners have no idea until all of a sudden at the very end they get a bill for litigation costs and their HOA's uh, dues are going up. Maybe they're trying to sell their condo or townhouse. They finally found a buyer. They're ready to go. And then they get the, the news that, oh, by the way, your condo or townhouse is involved in litigation so you can't sell. Well, let's take some of those proposals individually. If you need a vote of residents as opposed to just the HOA board to go forward with litigation, that I suppose works if the majority of the units are occupied. But early on in a building, isn't it possible that the developer holds many of those units until they're sold? So wouldn't that mean the developer might have a majority vote in deciding whether to sue the developer? You're absolutely right. And that was one of the protections that we had in the bill that said if the developer, he could not be a voting member. And and so I just want to back up just one second is there's nothing in this uh, legislation that would stop an individual from filing a lawsuit against the developer themselves. This is dealing with when the HOA decides to, as a whole, sue on behalf of the entire development. Then to this idea that arbitration is cheaper than litigation, debate over this bill last year was passionate on both sides, including on that particular topic. Some people testified that it's much cheaper to go to arbitration than going to court. But then there are people like Molly Foley-Healy, who represents homeowners in arbitration. 
the cost of arbitration of the HOA is much more significant than the cost of a trial. The cost of the arbiters is an hourly rate, and if you have a panel of three arbiters, the cost that the association bears for that comes off the top of the settlement. What's your response? You're always going to have those cases that are just on the extreme, but you're going to find that it's going to be, in most cases, more cost-effective to go through the arbitration mediation process. Representative, I'd like to go back to something you said a bit earlier, that when it comes to new construction, and specifically condos, there's always something that's going to happen, you said. I imagine there are people listening who just say, how about this? How about build condos without defects? That's the answer to this problem. Well, you're dealing with with humans, and I can't say that there's always going to be something that happens, but it's just the, the reality. I mean, you look at the car industry, you look at several other industries that are out there, you know, maybe the lumber that they got in wasn't great, maybe the, the way that the concrete was mixed wasn't great, and, and, and so there's always a chance for something that's out of the ordinary to happen. And, and the way that the laws are set up right now, uh, with with the threat of costly litigation, the reality is that developers are not building this product in the state. We looked at last year in the Denver metro area alone, only about 3.5% of the total inventory of new homes that were being built would fall into this category. So it has basically almost become non-existent in our state. And when we're looking around the state, I don't care if you're Denver, Pueblo, Colorado Springs, Fort Collins, or East or West Slope, rents are going through the roof. And it traditionally used to be that when people are getting into super high rent, then they look at the, well, maybe I can own a home and actually save myself money and, and go that route. But they're almost tied to where they don't even have that option anymore. I want to challenge this idea that the barrier to condo construction is fear of litigation. Could it be because of broader market forces and not this litigious atmosphere? The Wall Street Journal reported a few months ago that the mortgage crisis has meant tough new rules for getting a loan to buy a condo. Uh, Developers also have a harder time getting money to build condos, being insured to build condos. And as a result of those and other things, condo construction is at a historic low nationwide, not just in Colorado. What proves to you that the changes you're suggesting would lead to this boom in condo construction? I don't know if we would see an overall boom where we would go from 3 to 4% of the inventory to being 50%. Uh, but the reality, when you talk to developers and say, why is this product not there? They highlight this. In this series, uh, which we're dubbing zombie bills, those that have been tried in past sessions and come back to life uh, again and again, Th- this is the sort of quintessential zombie bill. I mean, it's really been tried from year to year <laughs> to year. What have you done to change the conversations or opinions that makes this bill possible in the in the coming session when it has failed so many times before? So one of the things that we've, you know, myself and the other sponsors of the bill is, is, is we've done a good job and, and other groups out there of going out and building a coalition. We had a probably one of the largest coalitions of people behind this bill, anywhere from like a Habitat for Humanity all the way up to the home builders, people that deal day to day with affordable housing. 
uh, were basically rallying behind this bill, saying there needs to be something done. We had, you know, Mayor Hancock down in Denver that said that was one of their main issues. And and I always try to tell people, being in the legislature, there's always usually groups that are kind of on one side of the issue and then the other. And a lot of groups that normally don't play nice together were arm in arm on, on this bill. And so that coalition, for one, is continuing to grow. And so when you see the coalition continue to grow, you'll see more pressure on those of us in the legislature. But I think that the other big factor that's out there now is we've seen several municipalities just go ahead and say, this is a big enough problem that we need to pass something locally. And one of the largest ones that just passed it was down in Denver. And so we're up to almost 2 million, 2.5 million people in the state of Colorado that are now covered at the local level under what we're trying to pass. Well, doesn't this, that but, point out the, the fact that uh, localities can handle this and the state doesn't necessarily have to? In, in most cases, yes. But this one, there's still the nervousness that something could happen at the legislature that could override what we're doing here at our local municipalities. Or there could be a lawsuit. That, there is a lawsuit now that's at the, in front of the Supreme Court. They could also overturn this as well. And so, yes, local municipalities are passing this. But there's still that uncertainty that's out there. And so having something passed at the legislature that is a blanket that covers the entire state brings certainty to the process. Let's go back to this idea that spurring on condo construction will lead to more affordable housing. Uh, Last year, you got questions about that uh, assumption or, or theory from other lawmakers, including Joe Salazar, a Democrat from Thornton. For the past several months, I've been speaking with uh, builders and developers, and I've been asking them, can you guarantee that low-income and affordable housing will be built? And not one person has guaranteed that. Um, So I'm asking you as the bill sponsor, and I know it would be hard for you to guarantee, but how is it that this would help out with low-income and affordable housing? Well, if you'd have played my response last year, I'll give you the same response that I have this year. There, You're right. There is absolutely no guarantee uh, that this would happen. But on the flip side, the only guarantee that's out there is if we don't do something, what we have going now won't change. We will continue to have very low inventory of this multifamily homes being built in the state. Uh, and I guarantee that if we don't change this, that won't change. Very quickly before we go, you had bipartisan sponsorship of this bill in both the House and Senate in the past year. Are sponsors from both parties lined up this time around? Um, I know that there's going to be bipartisan sponsors again. Who they'll they'll all end up being, I can't tell you at this time. But most people realize, look, affordable housing isn't a party issue. Representative, thanks so much for being with us. Well, thank you very much for having me today. State Representative Brian Del Grosso is a Loveland Republican and House Minority Leader. He talked about his zombie bill to try and spur condo development in Colorado. We will cover the fate of the measure in the coming session. Still ahead, how to say no when you're offered a holiday drink you don't want. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Alcohol is the only drug on earth you have to justify not taking, writes Annie Grace. In her new book, Grace, who lives in Morrison, takes on what she says is our alcohol-saturated culture. 
The book's release coincides with the holidays, when the pressure or even the desire to have one too many can be great. Annie, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. So before coming to Colorado, you lived in New York, had a successful career in marketing, and drinking was expected. You expected it from yourself in in many ways, for relaxation, for business, for pleasure. What led you to question your own drinking? Yeah, it was absolutely expected, I think, in my first job in an ad agency. We had brainstorming meetings, which involved, you know, everybody going into the boardroom midday and, you know, bunch of bottles of alcohol, wine, beer. Drinking at work. Drinking at work. All right. And that was that was really in the advertising and marketing agencies. I mean, that was very typical. And um, I felt huge amount of pressure to keep up. I kept getting promotions. I was the youngest VP in this company. And I had even a system to do it. I'd had a bottle, you know, a glass of wine, a glass of water, and sort of alternate back and forth to ensure that I could kind of keep up for the night. Um, And it even was at the point where if I felt like I was drinking too much, I'd sneak back to my room. I'd throw up the last glass of wine so I could continue on with my colleagues. Such was the pressure to keep up with all of these other you know, very high-level senior executives. It is fair to say that you weren't drinking because you wanted to, but you felt you had to in that environment? Absolutely. But it quickly turned into an I wanted to thing. I mean, alcohol is addictive and you become dependent on it. And so I became, you know, emotionally dependent on it. I started to believe it really helped networking. You know, I started to forget the, the glass of water as I grew a tolerance to alcohol. So it sort of crept up on me. And I'd say that... um I remember being in London, and the company was based in London, although I worked in the New York office. And it was another, you know, night out, which was every single night when I was, you know, working in this job. And it was to late nights and waking up the next morning, getting back on the plane to go back to my family and just sort of realizing, like, wow, I I really need to cut back. This is not doing me any favors anymore. You mentioned uh, the addictive qualities of alcohol. You cite a lot of research to demonstrate that that is true. I think that people uh, talk in terms of alcoholics and someone who's almost predisposed biologically to become addicted to alcohol. But what you're saying in this book is that because of its addictive nature, anyone is susceptible. Yeah, and I think it's almost a danger in a way that we talk about the fact that an alcoholic is the person. I mean, alcoholics often say that they were born that way when, you know, neurological research shows that any organism over time can become addicted to alcohol, similar to any other addictive substance. And in a way, it allows us to forget the addictive qualities of alcohol because we can, you know, just kind of close our eyes to it. I did it for 10 years. I mean, I had a friend who joined AA and I sat down and talked to her about it because we had been drinking together. And I said, wow, you know, is my drinking that bad? And she goes, no, no, Annie, I'm different. You know, I have an allergy to alcohol. I'm, I'm not like you. I'm different. And and I honestly took that as almost permission to continue my drinking, where I think I would have honestly looked at it quite a long time ago. That this concept of alcoholic creates an us versus them uh, dichotomy that allows you, that gives you a pass in some ways if you don't see yourself as, you know, one of that group. Yeah, if you don't identify as an alcoholic, you can 
really say, well, that doesn't apply to me. You know, equally, if you are starting to question it, there's so much fear around that term. At least for me, there was, and most of my readers say, wow, I was so terrified to think I could be an alcoholic because it's really been classified as this lifelong incurable disease. And in some ways, obviously, addiction is a very neurological disease, but it's a developed disease that is developed by exposure to the drug rather than inherent. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Morner, and we're speaking with Annie Grace, who's the author of a book called This Naked Mind, Control Alcohol. And given the pressure on many to drink over the holidays, we're talking about uh, this idea of wanting to drink, wanting to have a normal number of drinks, and yet feeling the pressure to do otherwise. What are some tips you have for that awkward social situation? It doesn't always have to be awkward, but it often is, of refusing a drink, you know? Yeah, it it can absolutely be awkward. And I think because when you stop drinking or you decide to cut back and all your friends are continuing to drink, you sort of raise the bar. And if there's any insecurity about their relationship with alcohol, they feel judged almost. And I think it's like if you're on a diet and you know, someone else is eating a donut, they can feel a little bit awkward about it. So I think really it's about just, and saying no in general is awkward. I mean, it's not great to say no to anything. So trying to flip the conversation so you can say yes and kind of be really proactive about it. Okay. What does that sound like? So would you like a drink? Yes, I'd love a Diet Coke. Yes, I'm so thirsty. I'd love some water and then maybe something else later, you know, just kind of diverting it. And I think we overthink it sometimes. We think the conversation has to be big and it absolutely can be if you let it be big and you let people start to pressure you for reasons. Uh, you could say something like, I can't, I'm driving. Yes, absolutely. Or I, think, I, have... I think people admire that notion of a designated driver. Or even I have a late night or I have some work to finish up on when I'm, you know, get back home or I've got an early morning coming. I'm on an alcohol-free cleanse. Yes, health reasons are good. Although you have to be a little careful because... You know, people can feel judged, again, that you're raising the bar. Why not just say, hey, I'm not drinking. I'm done with it. Or, you know. I've tried that. And I I came into my non-drinking days very much. I'm going to just say I'm not drinking. And it was amazing how kind of cool the atmosphere got. I think there's a lot of pressure on the host to make sure everybody's having a good time. And there's some fear around the idea that if people aren't drinking, they're not going to be having a good time. And I think people feel like, well, that... You're being boring. You know, I I get told that. How does the marketing of alcohol influence people's perception of drinking? I think marketing is really, it really digs in. There's not a lot inherent that you can sell in alcohol. I mean, it doesn't do anything really amazing for you. And so what we market is not necessarily what it does. We market relationships and connection and sex and, you know, all of these things that are very deep, visceral human needs. But they're not actually going to be found in a bottle. But we're very susceptible to that kind of messaging because it's the things that we all crave at the core of us. I think to your drinking and how it was a means of escape sometimes, a means of belonging. Um, I was in the supermarket the other day and there was a brand of wine called Mommy's Time Out. And it's this idea, I suppose, of selling wine as an escape, as, as peace in a chaotic family life. And I think, you know, it does. It slows down your brain functions. It slows down your thoughts. And so you can find escape, but you're really going below your thoughts instead of necessarily, you know, mindfulness rises you above them. And I think 
There's all sorts of brands like that. Mommy's at home drinking. I got a card <laughs> that said it's not drinking alone if the kids are home, you know, and, and that's something you wouldn't do for any other substance on the planet. What is your relationship to drinking today? I just don't want to drink anymore. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. So I don't feel like I am have any rules around it. Um, but I haven't had any desire to have a drink once I kind of really changed how I viewed alcohol and got my head on straight about it. So, so that was a years-long process, as you describe in this book. It was a process. And with the book, I really hope to shorten that process for other people. But it was really, I mean, at the crux of it, when I decided alcohol wasn't doing me any favors, I consciously wanted to drink less. I had this really strong, unconscious desire to continue drinking because I unconsciously believed it was absolutely vital to my life. And becoming aware of the factors that put that pressure on you is a huge part of this. Annie, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Her book is called The Naked Mind Control Alcohol. She is Annie Grace, who lives in Morrison. And read her tips for an alcohol-free holiday party at CPRnews.org. When we come back, the first documented Christmas in Denver. This is Colorado Matters. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In the very early days of Denver, about 50 settlers gathered for a Christmas feast. On the menu was grizzly bear, according to former state historian Bill Convery. We spoke about Colorado holiday traditions around this time last year. In December of 1858, A.O. McGrew, who was a correspondent for A number of different Eastern newspapers wrote a really detailed account of the first Christmas dinner on the banks of Cherry Creek in the South Platte River. Okay, which is sort of the oldest part of Denver. Right, yeah. Yeah. Here we are, he writes, in the midst of winter on this glorious Christmas day. And what do we find? On my way down this morning to your hospitable ranch, walking without an overcoat, I found the perspiration passing down my face as though it had been midsummer. And so it has been for the last month. True, we had a little brush of winter about the middle of November, but it amounted to nothing at all. Right. You know, it was really unseasonably warm. They described it like uh, late springtime conditions, mid-May. So everybody was, if you can imagine, in in their vests and their shirt sleeves, sitting out on a warm, sunny day on Christmas Day. And there are the words um, of William Larimer. Mm-hmm. Tell us about him and the others who came to the feast, some names you might recognize. Sure, in that's Colorado right. Uh, William Larimer was the man who founded Denver City. And of course, Larimer Street in downtown Denver is named after him. And a number of his associates, Elijah P. Stout and Samuel Curtis, for whom we have, of course, Stout Street and Curtis Street, and a number of others uh, who were really Denver's founders, all got together in tents and under trees on the banks of Cherry Creek to celebrate Christmas. Can you paint a picture of what Denver looks like at this point? Sure. Um, And is it Denver or Denver City at that point? Denver City was just one month old on December 25th, 1858. And it was a collection of unfinished cabins and canvas tents, uh, maybe 150 or 200 people in the vicinity, almost all men, very few women. And the women who were there were Cheyenne or Arapaho wives of mountain men. Okay. This gathering, yes, mostly men. They were smoking pipes, exchanging tales of, you know, elusive gold explorations (laughs) and and hunting expeditions. And uh, we talked a bit about what was on the menu at that point. Certainly. Yeah. You know, it, it seemed like the celebrants 
ate everything that they could hunt and kill on the prairies and in the mountains at the time. The the list is kind of amazing. Mountain rabbits, turkeys, ducks, sage hen, prairie chickens, black mountain squirrel, prairie dogs, snipe, mountain rats, oh, white swan, quail, sandhill cranes, and on and on. It's in, anything that uh that was moving, it seemed that they killed and they brought to Christmas dinner. Any sense of how the rats were prepared? <laughs> well, they talk about uh, that everybody considered themselves something of an amateur cook. And so you would hear during the preparations, people shouting from out of the cabins, more wine for the pudding sauce. More wine for the pudding sauce. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that might've been what it was suspended in. Yeah. And okay. I, I would uh, I would add that it was an extremely well lubricated celebration. They had uh, four or five different kinds of whiskey, champagne, uh, Rhine wine, uh, rum, Taos lightning, this this terrific mountain man concoction, a corn whiskey from New Mexico that supposedly had gunpowder and chewing tobacco and chili peppers in it as well. Gunpowder? Yeah. Okay. Uh, It might have been the whiskey under their belts that had them singing that day. Mm -hmm. Tell me some of the songs they sang. After the feast, uh, there was a period of toasts and songs. They sang the Star Spangled Banner. But they really sang a number of songs that were about their nostalgia for their homes in the East. They sang songs about their families and girls they left behind. In fact, they sang the song, The Girl I Left Behind Me, the... The, the old military marching song, which had been around since the American Revolution. These were men who were far away from their homes and were missing their families in a, a sincere way. They had optimism for the future of Denver City. But right at that moment, what they really wanted was their home and family. drank many toasts that day, including to the idea that they, quote, be blessed with an abundance of the genuine article of genus female during the coming <laughs> summer. Right. And so is born the myth of Menver, this nickname, I suppose, for Denver that comes from the belief that men dramatically outnumber women. Uh, well, they certainly did in 1858. Yeah. It was well more than 20 to 1. And uh, there was another toast to the carpenters who everybody hoped would be making plenty of cradles the following spring. Why don't we skip ahead a bit, Bill, uh, and move to the 20th century, the first electrically lit Christmas tree in Denver, set up by an electrician. An electrician named David D. Sturgeon, who founded Sturgeon Electric, a company that's still around today, set up an electrically lit Christmas tree in his front yard. The story is is that his 10-year-old son was mortally ill, was so ill and weak, in fact, that he couldn't come downstairs to celebrate Christmas. So Sturgeon put a tree outside of his window that his son could see. Oh, yeah. and, and that must have been quite a sight to behold at that time. It really was. If you can think about it, this tree lit with white lights or lights that were painted red and green, hand-painted. And it was enough of a spectacle that people came from all over Denver to see this display in, in David Sturgeon's front yard. I have to say the hot light bulbs and paint don't sound like a safe combination. Uh, it, it was a different age. Yeah. I think a lot of the safety <laughs> standards in place were, were yet to come. Every year, Denver city and county building is you know, bathed in lights. Mm-hmm. And a mayor uh, long ago sought to tone it down, make it less garish. <laughs> right. What happened? Uh, Denver began lighting up its civic display in 1919, and, and that became an instantly popular tradition. But in 1947, the newly elected mayor, Quig Newton, asked the Denver City electrician to tone it down a little bit. In fact, he went out and got an, an electrical consultant to come up with a more moderate display. <laughs> and the mayor provoked a public outcry. You don't mess with the Civic Center lights, it turns out. And he had to hire back the city electrician to go back to the, the more garish or, or 
uh, celebratory. Festive, yeah, depending on your point of view. There. Right. I remember first moving to Denver many years ago and being so surprised by the lights uh, and how many of them there were. Let's go briefly to a celebration. This is outside Denver in the San Luis Valley called Los Pastores. Sure. What is that? In the San Luis Valley, and particularly in the town of San Luis in the eastern end of the valley, the residents participate in a tradition that goes back to the Middle Ages, to the 1100s and 1200s. Back in the Middle Ages, illiterate people learned about the stories of the Bible through folk plays, through through by basically taking the roles of biblical figures and, and playing out the events. And that tradition crossed the Atlantic with the Spanish and wow. made its way through Mexico and New Mexico and into southern Colorado. So today on Christmas Day, residents of San Luis still perform a play about the shepherds who are traveling to Bethlehem to visit the baby Jesus. But on the way, Lucifer is trying to waylay them, to divert them. Interesting. And uh, But but it goes back to the idea of Elizabethan theater where, where the, everybody is involved in the play. Well, thanks for sharing some of this holiday history with us. It's my pleasure. Bill Convery is a former state historian, and speaking of holiday traditions, toys were on the mind of Denver archaeologist Thomas Carr when he stopped by our studio earlier this year. He'd unearthed a treasure trove of his old toys while visiting his childhood home in North Carolina. And there had been a particularly bad rainstorm that had washed out part of the backyard. It had just literally dug out a, a, a gully, and... I spotted something that didn't look natural, and it looked familiar, and it was a piece of a plastic model, scale model, sticking up out of the ground. It had uh, green and gray paint on it, and I recognized it. I recognized it as a toy model that I had buried there over 30 years earlier, and then I remembered I'd buried a whole bunch of models in the backyard, and I thought, they're all around here somewhere. I immediately realized that there was something important about this chance encounter of finding an archaeological site that I myself had created as a kid. I must have been like, you know, in my early to mid-teens. So I I got everything out of the ground that I could. So the first thing was this model airplane. It's like a British bomber from the 1950s, 60s. And uh, I was really into making model airplanes, model ships science fiction models. But I found lots of things that had just been totally obliterated, where there were just pieces and parts. And I had to actually start looking at online assembly instructions for different models to try and start figuring out what they were, which was very much a kind of archaeological procedure for trying to identify what fragments of things are. Titanic, there was the um, uh, Bismarck, the U.S. Forrestal uh, aircraft carrier, and I realized that there were also a whole bunch of models that I hadn't gotten rid of, and I wondered where those were. So I went up in the attic, and they're all laying up there. So as a young teenager or tween in the 1970s, I think it was very common for boys to be expected to be interested in weapons of war. We were all told to be afraid of the Soviet Union and nuclear holocausts, you know, and so that was, I think, some of what uh, I was responding to. And also just that gender role, you know, males are warriors. 
and kind of the traditional view in archaeology is that toys are meant to be ways to teach children how to take on roles. But they're also finding in study of, our, of archaeological sites, both in Native American and in colonial slave culture, is that toys and places where you find toys hidden were a form of protest on the part of children. I was like, oh my gosh, my blowing up things and you know destroying models was kind of a form of protest. I was the nerdy good kid. And my parents always had the perception that I was the good kid that never did anything wrong. But I was also the kid that blew up models in the backyard and used crushed up rocket motors to make big <laughs> fiery explosions that were probably not terribly safe. And I think then the, the burying of it was the hiding of, of the evidence. So, and I hadn't thought of that. If I'd left this, all these artifacts in place, they could have been an interesting archaeological site. Uh, but interestingly enough, the next year my parents just obliterated that whole area. Um, they built one of those uh, summer rooms and landscaped all around it, and it would have all been gone. Thomas Carr is a Denver archaeologist. He spoke with us earlier this year. That's Colorado Matters for today. Our managing producer is Rachel Estabrook, and our audio engineers are Michael Hughes and Matt Hurst. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News.